Lord, we do rejoice. I pray we are rejoicing. Considering what You have done. You have come to earth for us. You were born. And not just any other birth. You were born from eternity past into human flesh. And let us make no mistake, Lord, to, it was to save us. It was to go to the cross on our behalf. This makes us rejoice, Lord. This leaves us in awe. This is a supernatural, supernatural, profound truth. Thank You, Jesus. That in spite of us and who we were, who we are, You would still be born and live a perfect life all on our behalf. Die our death. Be buried in our grave. And also raise on our behalf. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for ascending to the Father's right hand and interceding for us even still. Thank You for being rich in mercy even when we were dead in our trespasses. Thank You for all the grace that You continue to lavish upon us. Thank You for the kindness, good and loving kindness that You have shown us and will show us forever, Lord. When we consider who You are and what You've done and what that means for us, we do rejoice. We celebrate Your coming to earth. We celebrate You being our sacrifice all out of pure unadulterated love. Thank You, Jesus. As we open Your Word this morning, would You help us to be engaged with the text? Would You make it compelling to us in a way that only You can? Make it alive? Would You apply it with Your Spirit in a way that only You can Apply it. No human words can do what You can do. You can take the truth of Your Word and You can push it down deep into our soul. You can bring about lasting transformation and Gospel salvation just by the reading of Your Word, Lord. We pray that You would do that. That You may get all the praise that unbelievers may become believers, be saved, born again, that we who are already Your children may adore You. Would You minister to us this way this morning, right now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you with me, if you would, to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, my favorite book of the Bible, my most read book of the Bible, I should say it like that, as we continue to consider the birth of our Lord as described in Luke 2. If you remember Luke chapter 2, we looked at the um, angel appearing to the shepherds in the field announcing the birth of Christ in verse 10 and verse 11, and this is how they described it. They said, I... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, 
who is Christ the Lord. And we've been walking through those descriptions, considering why would the angels call the birth of Christ good news? What, what about it is good news to us? We looked at that two weeks ago. It's the gospel. Uh, the birth of Christ is the gospel. Then last week, why would they call it good news of great joy? It's because of the benefits of that gospel. But what it means that Christ came for us. This week, we're going to consider why do they say that the birth of Christ is for all people? He looks to these shepherds and says, this is good news I've got for you, and it's good news of great joy, and it's for everybody. What does he mean by that? Well, that's what we're going to come to consider out of John chapter 3 this morning, looking at the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. But not just that verse. We're going to back up into verse 14 and read through verse 21, considering why the Lord's birth is regarded as being for all people. This statement by the angels, the for all people statement, is something that God has promised from long ago. Back in the Old Testament, the early parts of the Old Testament, we even find it promised as early as Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is explaining that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. And what was the promise that God made to Abraham, the covenant God made to Abraham? It was that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Some, some accounts of that covenant says all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. There were, there were three things that were promised to Abraham. Offspring, abundance of offspring, like the sand of the seashore, God said, like the stars of the heavens. The other part of that promise was land. I'll give you a promised land and bring you into uh, an inheritance of your own. And, and the third part was that uh, of your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Two of those came true uh, relatively early in Israel's history. The offspring increased in Egypt uh, significantly. And then they roamed through the wilderness before they were finally given the promised land. But it's not until the birth of Christ that we begin to see the last part of that covenant being realized. All the nations of the earth in this baby will be blessed. This birth is for all people. Again, as we've been highlighting this month considering the birth of, of Jesus, it's not just a normal birth of a normal baby, is it? It's the incarnation. It's the signification of everything that God has promised in, in concerning redemption for hum, humankind. So let's consider this out of John chapter 3. And, and as I said, we'll back up into verse 14. Most of you know this passage of Scripture. A, a Pharisee, verse 1 of chapter 3, named Nicodemus has come to, to Jesus by night and he's inquiring uh, about the things that Jesus has taught, the things that Jesus has done. He's, he's a curious man. God's been pulling on his heart towards Jesus, but his mind can't comprehend the things of Christ are beyond him and so he comes into verse 2 and he comes up to Jesus and says rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him well Jesus knows why Nicodemus is really there and he says in verse 3 truly truly I say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God that is mind-blowing to Nicodemus he totally doesn't get it in fact, in verse 4, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? If you 
back up into verse 9 of John 3. And Nicodemus says to Jesus, even after Jesus explains all these things, he just says, how can these things be? I have no understanding. I can't grasp what you're saying. What do you mean born again? How can a man be saved? That's my question. And it's not making sense to me. Eventually it will make sense to Nicodemus. But right here, he has no earthly idea what Jesus is saying. So in verse 14 and 15, Jesus explains what salvation actually is. Let's begin reading there and then we'll come back and walk through it. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This passage of Scripture is wonderful and it totally communicates to us that the birth of Christ, the offering of Jesus, is for everybody. As I said, we back up into verse 14 and 15. We first consider Jesus explaining to Nicodemus what salvation is. So it's from his own lips, his own mouth, and he makes this Old Testament connection. In verse 14, he goes back to Moses and an instance in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Moses lifted up, as Jesus says, this serpent in the wilderness. I want to read to you just portions of that account. As I said, it's in Numbers, chapter 21. In verse 4, we find the people of Israel uh, setting out to a certain place, being delivered from Egypt, and Verse 5, they begin to become impatient. And they speak against God and they speak against Moses. And they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water. And we loathe this worthless food. So they're complaining about God's deliverance. They've just been brought from slavery. They're giving, uh, given food from, from heaven. They're given water by God. And yet they're impatient. They want to be in the promised land. All this complaining arises. And in verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among them and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Well, verse 7, that worked because they realized what they've done. They come to Moses and they say, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and spoken against you. Pray to the Lord that He would take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus explains salvation to Nicodemus with that Old Testament story. And he says, just as the people of Israel were helpless against these fiery serpents, so are the people today helpless against sin. 
And just as Moses had to lift up this bronze serpent so that people could be saved, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up so that people could be saved. We can consider this Old Testament comparison and illustration and see wonderful connections being made to the Gospel. Fiery serpents are all around us in the form of sin. And all the people of Israel could do was cast their eyes and their hopes on God through this bronze serpent that Moses lifted up. You notice also that in that account in Numbers, the serpents don't go away. At least for some little amount of time, people are still getting bit. And their only hope is to cling to what God has said. Look to the serpent and you'll be healed. You'll be saved. I mean, how clearly is that the gospel? The Son of Man is lifted up on the cross. Anytime the New Testament uses that phrase, lifted up in connection to Jesus, that's what it's referencing. The cross being laid bare on the cross, crucified. And all we can do to address the problem of our fiery serpents biting us is cast our eyes on the Son of Man lifted up. And trust Him. And have faith in Him. That through Him, God will deliver us. Jesus looks at this man Nicodemus and He says, it's just like with Moses in the wilderness and that bronze serpent. All you will be able to do is look on the Son of Man lifted up. So what is salvation according to Jesus? It's faith in Christ alone. There's nothing you can do. All you can do is turn your heart to Jesus. All you can do is look on Him crucified and have faith in Him alone. That's your only hope for salvation. That's your answer to being born again. Nothing of your own doing. Nothing of your own accomplishment. Look to the lifted up Son of Man. We move on into verse 15 as Jesus is explaining salvation to Nicodemus. He says, the Son of Man must be lifted up just like that serpent so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This word in verse 15 through really the end of 21 is, is the key word in this passage. And it's the reason we come to this passage. It's a glorious word. It's the word whoever, and it encompasses so much. We'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, whoever, the invitation is open, whoever looks, cast their heart upon the Son of Man lifted up and believes in Him will be saved. Now, I just want to highlight a few things to you before we move on. The structure of John's Gospel is so precise and so wonderful that statement by Jesus, it's wedged just in the perfect place in John's Gospel. Between chapter 3 and chapter 4, where we find these two examples stressing the very point that Jesus is teaching. That anybody can cast their heart upon the Son of Man and believe and be saved. We find Him immediately in John 3 saying that to Nicodemus. Now again, verse 1 of John 3, Nicodemus is described as a Pharisee. He's described as a ruler of the Jews. In verse 10, Jesus describes him himself as the teacher of Israel. Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? It, it tells us Nicodemus is rich, influential. He has a place of status, stature, uh, kind of power. He's intelligent. He dictates 
religious matters to people. He's got a strong heritage. He's an Israelite. In contrast, we can jump over to chapter 4. And who do we find in chapter 4? A Samaritan woman at a well who is the exact opposite of Nicodemus. She's not wealthy. She doesn't even have a name in John's Gospel. She's not an Israelite. Instead, she's a Samaritan hated by Israelites. She's not powerful or influential. She's rejected, an outcast among her own people. She's not externally righteous as Nicodemus is. She's an openly known adulterer. Everybody in town knows it. She's the very definition of unwanted, unclean, a stain on human society. Everything that's wrong with my Samaritan village, I'm going to blame on that woman. And yet, the encounter Jesus has with Nicodemus and the encounter Jesus has with the woman at the well is very similar. And to both of them, he says, you have to come to me. This phrase in verse 15, whoever believes in the lifted up Son of Man will have eternal life is seen in the structure of John's Gospel. Jesus will say that to Nicodemus who is rich and powerful and He'll say that to a woman at the well who is unknown and adulterer and unwanted. The very structure and layout of John's Gospel tells us the truth that whoever believes is welcome to Christ. It doesn't matter what your sin is, or where you're from, what kind of social stature you have in our community, what your bank account looks like, none of that matters to Jesus. It's whoever looks to the Son of Man and believes in Him may have eternal life. That phrase tells us that Jesus is the only path to salvation. As he'll say himself later in John 10, he is the only door to eternal life. Believing in him, as he describes it to Nicodemus in verse 15, is the only possible way to be saved. If I can borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. There is no salvation except in Jesus Christ alone. No works of your own, No purchasing of indulgences. No self-righteous acts of keeping the law. Only Christ can save you. The explanation of Jesus in verse 15 and 14 tells us salvation is out of our hands, outside of our ability, not based on our merits. Again, Luke chapter 18, all we can do is cry out like the tax collector, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and cast your heart in faith to the lifted up Son of Man. Believe in Him, and Jesus says, you will have eternal life. That's His explanation to Nicodemus. Before we move on, I do want us to consider the definition of the word believe in Him because it's important. It's so important it determines your salvation. So let's just take a moment and consider it. Because I find that most people, and rightly so, have a hard time defining that word, saving belief. And it is somewhat difficult to get your hands wrapped around, your mind wrapped around. I've had wonderful conversations in these uh, previous weeks about defining this very word. 
And it's good for us to attempt to define it because many people think they believe and they will be unfortunately awakened on the last day to realize they did not have saving belief. Let me first say this as we consider the word belief and what it means in the New Testament. It doesn't just mean mere intellectual agreement about the existence of God. If you agree that God exists, that is not saving belief. That's acknowledging truth. The reality of that is even the enemy himself believes God exists, knows God exists, and that is not saving belief. Saving belief is also not perfect theology. Because I would agree with Jonathan Edwards that Satan himself has a pretty good understanding of who God is. And that is not saving belief. So it's not just this intellectual realization that, yeah, God is real. It's something more. It implies something more. And I would post to you the word trust and the word submission in defining saving belief. Yes, agreeing intellectually intellectually to the existence of God is part of saving belief, but don't stop there. It's also acknowledging that everything he says about himself must be true and trustworthy, namely his promises and the way of salvation. And if His words are true and trustworthy, then I have one of two options. Reject them or submit to them. Saving belief is trusting in Jesus Christ that leads to submission to Jesus Christ. And if it stops short of that, it's not saving belief. If it stops short of that, it's just mere intellectual agreement. Saving belief means I cast all my hopes on Christ in faith And lay my life down before Him. In the hope of eternal life. That's why Jesus can say simultaneously, whoever believes can have eternal life. And then look at the disciples and say, he who lays down his life has to follow me. Whoever wants to follow me has to give up himself. That's why in one one instance he can say, here's the free invitation. And in the other instance he can say, count the cost. Because true belief that is trusting in Jesus, leads to the submission of Jesus. Of course, if I believe everything he says about himself, I want to follow that. I don't want to oppose that. Therefore, when he says in verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life, he's saying whoever entrusts himself to me may have eternal life. So that's salvation explained. The Son of Man lifted up on the cross and the, the individual... Casting their heart, their faith upon Him in saving belief, then they may have eternal life. The second thing is in verse 16 and 17 that we want to consider this morning. And it's salvation being offered. Salvation explained as Christ crucified. And faith in Him alone for eternal life. 16 and 17 is that salvation being offered to us by God's love alone. It's offered by God's love alone. Alone. In verse 16, I think Jesus is done speaking. Others don't. Your Bible may continue the quotation, and that's okay. I think John here is speaking, summarizing all of what Jesus has said to Nicodemus. So that's how I'll present it. And I think in verse 16, John is rooting all the work of God's salvation in God's infinite love for us. 
in his unmerited, undeserved love for humanity. Again, it's the foundation for everything before it and everything after it. We find in verse 16 alone, really, that God alone is the initiator of salvation. Because John says, God so loved the world. God acts. God takes the first step. God initiated something that happens outside of us. You and I are not saved because of something glorious in us. We are saved because of something glorious in God. Divine love is the reason we're saved. We've said it before and we'll always maintain it. You and I, we don't bring anything to the table. We're not making God more complete, more glorious, more worshipful, more loving. God acts in saving humans, sinful people, merely out of His own divine love. This is taught all over the Bible. Romans chapter 5, we read this verse often and rightfully so. I want to get there. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We looked at these verses a few months ago in connection with the passage in Luke, but let me just bring out some of the things we highlighted there. Notice the people that Jesus is dying for. They're described in verse 8 as still sinners, and in verse 6 as the ungodly. The exact opposite of who God is. In His morals, in His character, in His goodness, in His justice, we are ungodly. And yet, those are the people Christ died for. Then, in verse 8, Paul says God shows His love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. We highlighted the fact that Paul uses that very language. It's, it's the very motivation for Christ dying for us. It's not His justice. It's, it's not His mercy or, or something else. All those can be wrapped up in that, but Paul uses the word love. Christ dies for ungodly people motivated purely out of His love for us. Nothing else. Not our love for Him. Not what we offer the team of heaven. Nothing but His love. His love for us. Ephesians 2, Paul says the same thing. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together again with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That's Ephesians 2. 4, 5, and 6. I also want to take you to an Old Testament verse so that you can see God is consistent in His nature. Ezekiel chapter 18. Just, just listen to these words from Ezekiel 18. Verse 21. God is speaking, and this is what He says. If a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right... He shall surely live. He shall not die. Verse 22. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. 
And then God says this about himself in verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God says, I look upon unregenerate, condemned, wicked, ungodly people, and I don't want them to die. I want them to turn and live. Because I love them. Even when they're dead in their trespasses. Even when they're ungodly. What's the proof of such love? What's the proof of John 3.16? It is John 3.14. The Son of Man lifted up. You want to know how much God loves the world? He gave His only Son. So that we come back to even John 3.16. Love is this foundation motivating factor for God's sacrifice on our behalf. John stresses this love when he defines and describes the Son in verse 16. He describes Him as, his, as God's only Son. He does it again in verse 18. The last part of verse 18. The only Son of God. Your Bible might say one Son of God or the way most of us have memorized it, we use both words, one and only Son of God. That's for emphasis. Look at the kind of serious love God has for the world. That's not just a Trinitarian statement that, that confirms the, the sonship of Jesus Christ. It's the emphasis of the glorious love of God. God so loves this world that His only Son is offered up in their place. It's an extravagant kind of love. A divine and infinite kind of love. A love that you and I don't know apart from God and His acting on our behalf. That's not the kind of love you have for your child and that's not the kind of love you show to your spouse. This is a supreme, supernatural kind of love shown towards you from God Himself. That's the kind of love we're talking about this morning. This son, according to John 3.16, is a gift given by God for the world. It's a gift that's unmerited again. It's a, it's a gift that's undeserved. It's a gift that's freely offered, freely given the word gave in verse 16 has to connect us to sacrificial connotations because that's what's required. You back up into John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist describes Jesus this way. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I believe it was last week we highlighted this phrase. We connect that back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the sinner is responsible, responsible for bringing their own sacrificial lamb. But here is God providing the lamb, not for Himself, but for us. So when we come to chapter 3, verse 16, and we read the word gave, we're reading it in light of chapter 1, verse 29. He's given as a lamb. To be slaughtered in our stead. I would go back to the fact of who he's being given for. Verse 16, it's described as the world. Verse 15, it's described as whoever. 
Even in verse 16, it's described as whoever, but that language of the world isn't just geographical or global. It's spiritual in its nature. It's the unregenerate people. That is who God gave up His only Son for. That's who God gave Jesus as a sacrificial lamb for. Again, why? (laughs) Out of what reasoning? There is no other explanation than love. As we wrap up verse 16, we find that verse 15 is being repeated with only one addition to it. This time, John explicitly contrasts eternal life with not perishing. That's implied in verse 15, and then it's said explicitly in verse 16. The word whoever is used again some six times in this passage. And he says, whoever believes, and there's the word believe that we've already defined, believes in Him, the Son of God, given for sinners, should now, unlike verse 15, not perish. But also, like verse 15, have eternal life. In Christ, you and I are liberated from death and we're united to Him for eternal life. Again, the word whoever is the whole reason we picked this passage this morning. Because it's the same principle that the angel proclaimed at the birth of Christ. This baby is born for all people so that Jesus will even come and say it out of His own lips in verse 15. Whoever believes, all people can believe and be saved. Let's consider that word because that's, again, the whole reason we're here this morning. First, it does not mean universal salvation. Not everybody will be saved. Everybody can be saved. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all people. Not everybody will be saved. So what does he mean by whoever? I think there are two things that he means primarily. Number one, he's encompassing us. Sitting here this morning. You and I are part of the whoever. And praise God for that. When we read that word, whoever, we should rejoice at such a word. Because we aren't Israelites. And we certainly don't have it all together. But we're encompassed in whoever. We can believe and be saved. It doesn't matter our varied backgrounds. I know we don't know each other in in all the details like God knows us. But it doesn't take a a super smart theologian to realize the very different types of sin represented in this room right here, right now. It, It wouldn't be a surprise to us to find hidden backgrounds, would it? Felons and and former gang members and former drug addicts and former alcoholics and and. Former adulterers, and and the list can go on, right? Arrogant people, gossipers, slanderers to the extreme, liars sit here, deceivers sit here, greedy individuals sit here, where, where the lust of money overtakes our lives. And all of us are guilty of building our own kingdom. And all these varied backgrounds of sin, and then all the varied backgrounds of upbringings and nationality and and all the diversity that represents us, 
we cling to a word like whoever. Because you don't have to have it all together to be saved by Christ. And you don't have to be like Nicodemus, externally righteous or influential or powerful. You get to be like the woman at the well and still found salvation in Jesus. You can be the adulterer. You can be the addict. You can be the felon. And none of those things will define you if you are born again in Christ. The word whoever encompasses us in this room. And all of our varied shortcomings. I rejoice in the word whoever. Because he didn't leave you out and he didn't leave me out in that word. The second part of that word that we ought to consider is that doesn't just encompass us, but that encompasses everyone else too. Which means you and I don't have the right to ever think somebody's too far gone for Christ to save them. We never get the the opportunity to look at somebody and say, they're not worth sharing the gospel with. We don't get to write off those who are in jail right now. We don't get to write off the teenager in your family who is currently addicted to drugs. We don't get to write off the co-worker who just cheated on his wife. We don't get to write off the wife who just left her family and her kids alone in DHS for marijuana or, or crack cocaine or whatever else you want to fill in the blank. We don't get to write off our mom and dad because they divorced. We don't get to write off anybody. The word whoever applies to them as well. And praise God for that. Because my aunt, my uncle, or my mom, or my dad, or my, my granddaughter, or my, or my grandson, or whoever, isn't too far gone for the saving power of the gospel of Jesus. We rejoice in the word whoever, church. We live on the word whoever. We share the gospel on the basis of whoever. We have hope because of the word whoever. That you haven't sinned too much and they haven't sinned too much. Or that the Muslim in Iraq right now or, or the atheist in China right now or, or the communist in former Soviet Union isn't too far gone. The gospel, because of this word, whoever, is not just an American thing. It's not just a Western society thing. It's not just a religious elite or a wealthy kind of thing. It's a whoever kind of thing. And praise God for that. So we have these angels appearing to these lowly shepherds in the field. We even see this, this structure in the birth of Christ, right? In one moment, the lowly shepherds are, are being proclaimed of the glories of the birth of Christ. And the next moment, these very rich, wealthy wise men show up. The whoever is at the birth of Christ, coming out of the mouth of Christ, extending to the cross of Christ, so that you and I today can be the whoever will come and believe can have eternal life. So why, is, why are these angels telling these shepherds this birth is for all people because of what Jesus teaches in John 3.15, because of what John teaches in John 3.16, that this gospel extends to anybody with any background, any shortcoming, any issue, any nationality, any ethnicity. It doesn't matter. Whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. So as I've said before, I say again, I thank God for whoever. That word. Let me just wrap up with verse 17. 
I said that, but I've got to finish. Let me run through the rest of these verses. The reason the word whoever is possible is because of verse 17. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. There's the word world again, which connects to the unregenerate form of, of people. And I found that verse earlier in life to be incredibly liberating for me as the accuser uh, taunted me and haunted my mind with thoughts of God's hatred for me and God's uh, lack of desire to save me. I realized John 3.17 was real. The very purpose of Christ being born was to save, not condemn. I found great comfort there. Christ came for that explicit express purpose. Which tells me He has this huge desire to save. So how is it possible for whoever to come to Christ? It's because His love motivates Him to have this enormous divine desire to save. And how do I know this is an enormous divine desire? Because who else would take on weak, fragile flesh live in such a fallen, broken world among very rebellious, imperfect people and then be crucified. I dare say nobody else in this room would do that for me or for you. But God did that for us. That's the display of the truthfulness of verse 17. He has this huge desire to save by leaving glory even for just a moment and taking on human flesh. Verse 18, we find whoever again, it's repeated. Just so, you know, God's overarching presence here of writing Scripture, just so it's clear, He repeats it again. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. So we find salvation explained. We find salvation offered. We find salvation received. What, what happens if you have saving belief in Jesus, you're no longer condemned? Romans 8.1 There's therefore now no condemnation condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus which means make no mistake you are guilty but your guilt's been dealt with in Jesus and you've been pardoned so David would pray in Psalm 25 God pardon my guilt for it is great how does God pardon guilt in his perfect justice it's through Jesus so whoever believes this is the result of receiving salvation whoever believes in Christ alone, is not condemned. But salvation rejected, whoever does not believe is condemned already. That tells us of our desperate, urgent need of Christ. Because without Him, apart from Him, we're already condemned. And why are we already condemned? Because we haven't believed. We don't trust God for salvation. We've lived in sin instead. Now, some people have a hard time uh, reconciling this with John chapter 9, verse 39, where Jesus says, I, I'm the judge and I've come to execute judgment. And let me just say, judgment and condemnation are different. You already are condemned apart from Christ. There's no need to bring more condemnation. So he brings salvation. But notice also, verse 18, that there's this warning that we should highlight. The same unbiased whoever that is given for people to be saved is unbiasedly used for whoever rejects. 
It, it doesn't matter. Just like it doesn't matter if you're uh, rich or, or powerful or poor or uh, an outcast. That doesn't matter for your salvation. That also doesn't matter for your rejection. You might have all the money in the world and all the power in the world. You might be the president of the United States, but if you reject Christ, you're condemned. It's an unbiased whoever in all of its uses in this passage. So don't think you've tithed enough or gone to Sunday school enough or, or whatever. Whoever rejects Christ will be condemned. All of your eternity hinges upon saving belief in Jesus Christ or not. It is that clear. Well, in verse 19, 20, and 21, you find the reason for people rejecting or people receiving. We'll just suffice it to say in verse 19 and 20, people reject Christ because they love their sin too much. Is that you? Do you love your sin too much? And I know why you love your sin too much. Because you haven't tasted the supreme pleasure of Jesus. You haven't tasted the supreme joy of Christ. Because when you do, you find that sin is not just bitter, but it tastes like vomit. And you despise what robs your joy. Remember, verse 21, the reason people receive is because God has worked in them so that they do what is true. They come to the light. They find reality in Jesus and salvation there. Why is the birth of our Lord described as being for all people? It's because in verse 14, He's going to be lifted up just like Moses lifted up that serpent. And He's going to be lifted up so that verse 15 will be true. Whoever would believe in Him and cast their faith and trust in Him alone can be saved. And that salvation is offered to whoever because God so loved the world, He gave His Son as a sacrifice for sinful people. That it was His purpose for coming. So rejoice in being the whoever. If you're born again, as Jesus explained to Nicodemus, let a truth like this, the foundational love of God that makes the whoever possible, let that drive you to greater adoration and deeper worship and greater joy, and let you celebrate today, and rest today, and, and live today in that kind of a love for the whoever. If you're an unbeliever this morning, guess what? The whoever's still open. We live in the age of mercy, praise God, so that 2 Corinthians 6 is still true. Paul says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Be saved. Realize the gospel's power, how far it extends to even me and yes to you. Our God's birth, our Savior's birth is for all people. That's us. That's those outside this wall. He can save whoever will believe. So either believe for the first time today or rejoice that he has saved you. Either way, may he be glorified. Lord, we are. Um, just in awe. We are humbled at the truth of John 3. And there's so much there, Jesus. There's so much there, Lord. That we can't begin to scratch even the surface. We're just hovering above the surface. We haven't even landed on it yet. 
And yet, hovering above it is enough to see your supreme, glorious, beautiful, divine love that enables whoever to come and believe and be saved. We thank You, Jesus. We thank You that You are rich in mercy because of the great love with which You've loved us even when we were ungodly, dead, wicked. Thank You, Lord, that when we didn't even know we needed a Savior, You had the love and desire to save. This is Christmas. This is Your birth. This is good news of great joy for all people. A loving God has made a way of salvation. Oh, how we thank You. Lord, words just don't do it justice. Our hearts are yearning to express the most gratitude we possibly can and we will do so for eternity. My only prayer now is that You would work this passage into all of our hearts in a way that only You can. You would do it for Your name's sake. For our good. In Jesus' name, Amen.